Good morning from Reykjavik. It's a lovely, sunny, but fresh day on Friday the 9th of June 2023 and I'm standing in Arnahol Park right by the statue of Ingolfur Arnarsson, the first permanent settler in the city. I'm looking northeast towards the Faxaflói Bay and I can see Essia Mountain in the distance. What a view to wake up to. We have a very special circle show happening in the south of this island in a few days. Doing a show in Iceland has been a dream of founder Derek for a long time, but it had to be done right, in the right place and with the right artist. Needless to say, a lot has happened to get us here and it's all been worth it. We have the exceptional Oliver Arnold with his band playing in a carefully selected location at a time of year when the sun never sets. It doesn't get more special than this. But we have some time until this magical performance takes place and we're using it to immerse ourselves in the stories and communities of Iceland. This is Ecosystem by Circle, episode two. When you just don't stop, you don't have to think. It just kind of flows out of you. Those are still the most magical and meaningful moments of my life. Our culture is really connected to the geothermal heat. If you go into the hot tub, you could have the Prime Minister or Björk. You just talk to them like you would talk to everyone. You see a stone, you pick it up, uh-huh. you know if it's going to be the right note you're looking for. Yes, 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 natural. Norse people were everywhere, both as Vikings, as farmers, as mercenaries. Old Icelandic was spoken in a lot of places in the world in that time, the language we still speak today. Hanging on cables, on a window cleaning lift, going down a volcanic chimney. It was a very dark time in the sense that everything was just falling apart. It was a very important step in sort of breaking up the way the political system had always been. 40 years ago, it became a hit all over Europe. The most successful album in the history of Icelandic music. In this podcast, we're going deep by exploring Icelandic culture, tradition, from farming to history, politics to fishing, geothermal energy, and of course, music. I'm very excited to take you with me. Right, let's go and meet Ivar Kjartansson, part-time drummer and DJ, part-time guide, and our companion throughout this episode. Perfect fit for us, don't you think? How's it going? Good, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. This is your city. Yeah, my adopted city. I grew up on the east coast of Iceland, on the other side. But I've been here for the last close to 20 years. What's it like growing up in the east of Iceland? It's a privileged childhood. Growing up in the late 80s and 90s in a small town of 700 people in a fjord on the east coast. Literally built on a route of a mountain, you walk out the door and you are in nature. Part-time musician, part-time guide. Yeah, I love music and guiding equally, because music, especially in these days, mostly it's a desk job. You sit at your desk with your computer, and if I don't get to spend time outside or in a rural area or in the mountains, then I'll start to feel bad. You're never too far from the mountain in Iceland. No. <laughs> we should really start by getting a little bit of uh, background on where we are. So we're going to go meet someone who knows a little bit more than the average Icelander about this amazing city. Yeah, her name is Anna Drapp Augustotir and she has a master's degree in history along with other studies that I cannot pronounce properly in English but she's an expert in 
Reykjavik, so to speak, from Skurats to where we are today. We are here at the uh, Museum of Photography in Reykjavik, where I'm doing a research. It's really interesting to be here meeting you guys, talking about history, because the technology, photography, is older than Reykjavik City, like we know it today. We have pictures of Reykjavik before it was built, kind of see every step of, of how it was planned. Reykjavik was always the capital? Yes. Some people would, of course, say Copenhagen was the capital until, like... Iceland became independent from the Danes. Most of the people lived uh, outside of the city. It was an agricultural country. Everyone worked for a farmer until like 1940. Today, one third of the uh, nation lives in this corner of the island, around 150,000. We can say that the city is like we know it today with the culture and the main street and the houses, the architecture. It all happened in the last 100 years. We should visit. Wind in Iceland is like rain in England. You just can't escape it. It just creeps up on you everywhere you go. And today is no different. Reykjavik means smoky bay. Reykja means the smoke, geothermal fumes that came up from the ground when the first settler came here, and the bay that the Reykjavik is built by. Now we are in this oldest part of Reykjavik. We're walking on a cobbled street with typical Icelandic buildings, faced in colourful, corrugated aluminium cladding. first settlement is here in this spot where we're walking, and, yeah. and there's been settlement here continuously since then. Yeah, it's true. Some of our best archaeologists come and research the area before they get permission to build there. Not too good for this hotel. They found the oldest settlement in Reykjavik in their basement, so <laughs> they had to postpone. The building of the, Hotel yeah, Reykjavik Centrum. Had, like one of the most popular exhibitions in the basement instead. <laughs> so now we are uh, getting close to... Part of the main street, Laugavegur, it's the pool road, if you translate it. The street to the geothermal pools where uh, women went with the laundry on their back, which was hard. So in 1885, they decided to build this road for them. Here I can see many shops and bars, many different types of architecture and building materials, from concrete to timber, stone and corrugated aluminium. It feels like this area has seen a lot of change. Yeah, around 150 years old and the oldest houses here. And it always just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I always think about like the people that moved around like 1900 to Reykjavik from their tiny little buildings, how they experienced this new built environment. The role that this street plays in the city, it kind of always just <laughs> is moving with the vibe each decade. The story kind of lies there in the uh, the pavement. When there is like uh, financial difficulties, we have a lot of empty spaces here, and it's quite sad. But when there's like everything is booming and uh, flourishing, there's everything. It's really lively here. It's a street of opportunities, I think. Here uh, on the main street, there is like another street called Skolaverstiur that uh, ends up at the famous church Hadgrimskirkja. And we have this beautiful rainbow painted on the street. 70 meters high, maybe? Something it like is. That. 
and it's just this tower of uh, basalt columns and it's just something that you would see maybe in, in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> the architect was fascinated with hidden people and elves. And I mean, it looks like it could be an elf. Yeah, maybe it's just a big elf that lives in there. Just had a call from Oliver Arnold's manager, Arni. They've got a short window to have a chat before rehearsals start for the circle show. I'm off to meet him. Hi, how are you doing? Shoes off? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How's the prep? Uh, good. We'll start rehearsing tomorrow. Only to We are in my studio in the old harbor area of Reykjavik. The land was extended here outwards to make more space for the harbor industries. And this area is under a bit of development. Artist spaces here music studios, there's a video game studio, the record label here. When I walked in, huge bay window, and we can see the mountains in the distance. Yeah, the mountain we see across the fjord here is a mountain that I've known all my life. It's called Esja, and I grew up near the roots of that mountain. That's where I was born and, and raised in the suburbs of Reykjavik. So this mountain has always meant a lot to me. As everyone, I think, in the city, like it's just what we see all the time, you know, it watched us grow, so to speak. Ironically, we're in the back room of my studio and that's where I actually make the music, where there's not a view of the mountain, but nobody's making music just like looking at mountain. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it creates a sense of serenity, which is important for a creative space. Very natural and wooden. There's a wall behind my, my desk of tree logs. Tree trunks, yeah. Trunks. It's really nice for acoustic, but it's also really great to look at. You feel like you're in a forest when you're working. There's, of course, a lot of gear here. Maybe one too many pianos in here. <laughs> one grand, uh, two uprights, and one mini piano. And a bunch of synthesizers. I got my library set up right now, as we will have for the circle shows, as I've been preparing here. And then mixing console and computers and stuff <laughs> it's a wonderful mix of let's say natural instruments and electronic yeah it's definitely something i consciously think of and and the electronic instruments here are all very like characteristic most of them are analog there's very few digital things in here kind of mixes in better with the acoustic instruments because they do have the similar kind of imperfections This is my absolute favorite synthesizer. There's barely a song I make that this doesn't play some part in. It's a Korg polyphonic synthesizer from the 70s, and it's a beast. It's very big, very heavy. The signal from the computer is, is kind of helping create the rhythms and those but then I play the actual note content just on the keyboard of the synth. Gives it this really unique characteristic and liveness. So fun, so fun to play with. Do you consider your sound to have an Icelandic identity? I don't think the music inherently has that, no. But I think people's experiences with it can. 
you come to Iceland, you go and drive around and you look for Icelandic music. But that's not a coincidence, you know, that's because Icelandic music has for many years been marketed as something very connected with nature. And that's all fine, but it's just a bit more abstract than that, I think, for me. people listening to this won't be familiar with the extreme switch in seasons that you get here in the Arctic Circle. Does it affect your art in a way? January, February, they're dark, they're cold. People are a little bit depressed. You don't really see a lot of people in those days and it's pretty good for locking yourself inside a studio and making a lot of music, you know. <laughs> it surely affects it in that way. So I, I think it definitely helped create a, a very solid music scene here. We had like this huge surge of hip hop before the pandemic. And I don't think we've like found our next thing yet, but I've always been extremely interested and fascinated by more traditional culture of music here. For example, like every single village in this whole country has a choir in it, you know, and, and music has always served as like a way of getting together. It serves the community. And I explored this a lot in, in a project I did in 2016-17 called Island Songs, where I kind of went around the country and I met with a lot of these people who were doing music not as a career to like sell records and go on tour, but just as a service to their community, um, like an organist in a church. They have many jobs, you know, they're at the funerals, they're at the weddings, they are also probably directing the choir in the village, which has, you know, people getting together every Wednesday and having coffee and singing together. And then they sing together at parties or in the funerals or in the weddings. <laughs> and it becomes such beautifully ingrained into like the fabric of society here. Should we have a look at maybe one of your acoustic instruments? I mean, I'm obviously drawn towards the grand piano. You're actually the first one to see this grand piano or to document it in some way. It just arrived here about two weeks ago. It hasn't actually been tuned since it arrived because when you move a piano across the ocean, you should wait a couple of weeks just to let it settle in, um, get used to the space, get used to the humidity and the temperature of the space before you tune it because it just it will be unstable anyway. Um, this is my touring piano. I'm very fortunate to work with Kawai. Always happy to accommodate my strange requests. And what kind of strange requests? So after the tour ended, I needed a new piano here. Obviously, I didn't have enough here. <laughs> <laughs> and they made this wonderful modification for me before shipping it over. They put felt on the inside of a grand piano. It's called a night damper, you know, so you could practice at night. It makes the sound of the piano quieter. I really love how it sounds with the felt because the piano sounds a lot softer. And now I have these two buttons here on the underside of the piano. So you can change the piano from kind of like a normal grand piano sound, although very soft and beautiful, to extremely soft. again this is absolutely wonderful to have I'm so happy with it 
still have some moments where you think the process you're in is truly a magical one, where something really, really incredible happen and get emotional? Oh, absolutely. Every time I write a song that I feel is actually really good and something I'm going to be proud of, and it's something you know right away when you just don't stop. You don't have to think. You don't have to make decisions. It just kind of flows out of you. Um, those are still the most magical and meaningful moments of my life. Absolutely. Shall we finish with another synthesizer type yeah, one, maybe? Yeah, there's one really uh, interesting here. Uh, this was the first digital synth to enter the doors of this studio. It was a big moment for me to stray away from analog. Did you feel like somehow you were being a, a traitor to all the other instruments? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. It took me like a year to actually buy it because I wanted it, but I was like, ah, but... Is this really me, you know? It was like a identity crisis. <laughs> the reason I was so interested in it is like this could bridge the gap between acoustic and then kind of morph it into a more digital sound. Do your instruments have a personality? Do they have names? They don't have names, but they do have personalities for sure. And some are a little bit more stubborn than others. Some are a little bit more, I can manipulate them a bit better than others. <laughs> uh, absolutely. They all have their own character and, and I feel like you speak to them. So it's very alive. It doesn't really feel like it's electronic, you know, it no, feels no. acoustic in many ways. done a fair amount of videos in this space and one thing that I was thinking about was like I wonder what kind of shoes Oliver Arnold's wears because I've actually never seen him wear shoes ever whether at your gigs always in socks here always in socks no one knows what shoes you wear well actually in Iceland uh, it's very rude to come into someone's house with their shoes on it's weird man <laughs> As to what kind of shoes I actually wear, I, I, my favorite type of shoes are shoes that feel like socks, you know, these kind of slip-ons. <laughs> so I guess there you go. <laughs>
performance with Circle is going to be outdoors, probably not going to be wearing socks. But also on a more serious <laughs> note, can you tell me a little bit about the process of preparing for a performance like that, which is by all means very unusual? Circle first approached me at least five years ago. So this has been a long time coming and we've actually tried a couple of times before to make this session happen. Once we had a location in Norway we were going to do and then another time we were going to do it in some hot air balloons. I kind of scrapped that because those things are very loud and we cannot fit a piano inside an air balloon. But I've admired their crazy ideas. That's kind of why I wanted to do it because it's out of the box thinking triggers something in your mind. Finally, this year, we actually called them up and say, let's just do it in Iceland. Me and a string quartet and my drummers, well, quite a process um, to prepare for this. I didn't want this to be like a half-assed version of my show. I wanted to do the full thing, even though we're going to a crazy location where doing the full thing is kind of not feasible you know (laughs) but I I wanted to make it happen and for me it's important when I'm doing stuff like that that it's not only for the visual it's not enough for me that it's just a pretty mountain it matters which mountain it is and if I have a connection to it um, is it a part of my story you know because we're we're all trying to tell something with music not just to make pretty YouTube videos (laughs) although it will be very pretty I'm sure yeah yeah. Yeah, that's a bonus More music tomorrow with someone known for taking Icelandic artists to the world stage in the 70s and 80s. I'm told they have many anecdotes to share. For now though, we're heading out of town to visit a couple of places crucial to this country's past and present history. As we heard earlier, Reykjavik is a very young city, but Iceland was settled over a thousand years ago and several texts documenting the early days of this country have been written where we are now. We are in uh, Reykholt on the west coast of Iceland, home of Snorri Sturluson, one of the most known Icelandic sagas writer. So we're standing by a round pool the size of a big hot tub or a, a jacuzzi with natural geothermal spring water in it, and this is where Snorri Sturluson used to basically lounge in 1200, arguing about politics and thinking about what he was going to write in his sagas. Why are sagas important? The sagas are important in a sense that They're written in 1200, and we have houses all over Europe that are older than that. But Iceland's legacy isn't in architecture or physical things. It's in the sagas. They write about the settlement and also the mythology, dragons and and monsters and so on, and also actual things and actual people's lives. Probably the most notable source of medieval history that exists in northern Europe, at least, if not further. And we're going to meet Berkur Thorkjörsson. He's probably the most notable scholar in, in Snorri's history. We are maybe the only country in the world that has written uh, sources about its actual beginning. Something happened here in Iceland that became a trend where you wrote all these sagas and it was a kind of a boom. 
Snorri was an influencer, kind of a model for other style writings. Some scholars want to say that the Iceland saga was actually invented here in Reykjavik. People can actually use quite a lot of material to write Icelandic history. So we have the, uh, the Book of Icelanders and the Book of Settlement, which describe the settlement of Iceland from beginning. Even talk about some Irish monks being here before we can actually talk about a year, maybe 874 people moved to Iceland, both from Norway and also from the British Isles. It was quite warmer in Iceland in that time, and that played a huge role. You had a lot of land here for farming, and the word spread out, and people began to sail to Iceland on these great ships, which the Vikings had invented. Norse people were everywhere, both as Vikings, as farmers, or mercenaries. They were dominant in British Isles and in the Baltic and in, in Russia. And some people think they even sailed to America. And you can imagine that Old Icelandic was spoken in a lot of places in the world in that time, the language we still speak, me and Ivar, today. If you take a current English person and a current Icelandic person and you put them in London in the year 1000, it's much more likely that the Icelandic person could communicate rather than the English one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the language hasn't changed much. Not the uh, written language, but I had a nephew that had read all the sagas before he became 12 years old, easily. You get a very good feeling about everyday life here in Iceland in the medieval times. How big the farming land was, what kind of cattle, how many sheep, how many horses, how many people able to live here, what kind of class system did you have. We know quite a lot about all the feuds and all the activities of individuals. There was quite a lot of woods, but the trees weren't big enough for building houses or ships, and so you had to import the timber from Norway. And that's exactly what Snorri did here. And this is not just timber. This is timber ready-made for building certain types of houses. So you had, in a way, house factories in Norway, transported the timber to Iceland and put together just like IKEA furniture. You actually had the numbers on the timber, probably produced just like the Viking ships. So you have, compared to, I think, most countries, unbelievable source material. When we think of Vikings, we think about great Norse raiders sailing on the seas of Europe, Russia and North Africa. But being a Viking is essentially a job. It doesn't apply to all Scandinavians. So although some of the men and women who settled Iceland in the late 800s may have previously been involved in Viking raids, they came to Iceland as farmers, looking to start a new life in a new world and create a new set of rules. Today we think of Iceland as a forward-thinking country with an impressive track record on human rights, equality and people power, especially if we look at recent political history. We're heading back to Reykjavik to talk about this shortly, but first, Ivar tells me that in order to understand the major political events that happened in this country 15 years ago, we need to explore a little bit more of this age of saga from the 10th to the 13th century and visit the most significant place from this era. 
We're at Thinkvellir. Literally translates to Parliament Place, an assembly gathering place. And this is the first national park in Iceland. It's beautiful. It has the biggest natural lake in the country, but it's also the most visible site of the North American and the Eurasian tectonic plates drifting apart. And you can visibly see that here in all these fissures and natural formations here in the old lava fields, how they're basically being torn apart. And here was the original parliament of Iceland. That's where it operated from every summer since 930. And it is believed that's the first national parliament in the world. How did it work? Up until around 1200. That time is called the Commonwealth. The chieftains met every summer to go over legislation and taking care of, of legal action, you know, going over crimes and such and making sure that punishments were followed through in whatever means that meant at the time. <laughs> and would people come from all corners of the country then? Yeah, this place is quite well situated for people from all over the country to arrive here. It wasn't many days of horse riding to get here for most people. And apart from being a parliament every summer, it also basically was a festival. Common people would gather and stay here for usually weeks in tents and, you know, trade, drink, meeting each other. And there are stories of powerful, romantic alliances forming here at, at Thingvellir that changed the history of Iceland later on. What I think is interesting about this place, I participated in the household revolution, so to speak, where we met at the Parliament Garden in Reykjavik. I went there and got tirkas in my eyes. That was a big, unique time in Iceland that people went out to the streets and demonstrated. And they'd never done that really before because Parliament had always been such an approachable thing. But that changed in 2008. By early 2008, Iceland had grown so rich its assets were nine times greater than its entire economic output. The financial crash that same year affected the whole world, but Iceland crashed harder than any other Western country ever had in peacetime. The three biggest Icelandic banks owed a combined $62 billion in debt. The biggest of the three was one of the largest bankruptcies the world has seen since 1920. We are sitting in that central Reykjavik at the Parliament Square in front of the Parliament building built in 1881. This square that we're sitting in now and, and on the, uh, more parts of the downtown area were just filled with people demonstrating. A lot of people just lost most of their life savings in one night. The main demand was election. The main right-winged central ruling parties had been in charge pretty much non-stop one way or another and people were just simply fed up because we'd been fed lies for so many years and there was just like a tipping point and then eventually one of the parties in the coalition uh, government basically broke up the coalition resulting in an election it was a big relief and also like a sense of accomplishment that it actually worked. And then something quite unusual happened in Reykjavik leading up to the 2010 city council elections. Yeah, completely turned things upside down and changed the political system a little bit in Iceland when a new party came to the scene called the Best Party, led by Jón Gnar, a well-known comedian with absolutely no political experience 
And then there was an instrumental young woman keeping things together in the background. Comes from a musician family. Her younger brother is a well-known musician and a friend of mine. And we're going to go to the Harper in the city center where she currently works. You can probably hear the industrial noise around us. You can smell the fish in the air. We are literally looking at a boat being offloaded with fish. We're going to meet Heida Kristin Helgadóttir. She is working on sustainable fishing. She ran the campaign for Jón Gnar, who swept the election and became a very successful mayor in Reykjavík for four years and could have easily swept the elections again four years later, but went back into stand-up comedy. We've got that in Ukraine at the minute. President in time of crisis that also comes from being a comedian. Yep, obviously comedy is not a big factor there now, but President Zelensky has publicly noted Jon Knar to be one of his main inspirations for his election campaign. And they are personal friends. They went for visits to Zelensky before the war. We can see seagulls. They just come and are trying to like steal the fish. Fresh <laughs> caught for everyone. I am soon to be the general manager of the Ocean Cluster, where we're actually sitting, by the harbour in Reykjavik. Before we talk about what you're up to now, can we just kind of rewind what led you to get involved in politics? I was finishing my degree in, in political science in 2009, and, and a friend of mine introduced me to Jon Gnar, and he had this radio show. And basically the idea of the best party started as this sort of joke in that let's just form a political party. I mean, the two of us won't do it any worse than the idiots that are currently doing it. He was, like, calling me and asking how the campaign was doing, and I was just spitballing some shit that we were doing, which wasn't true. But uh, in a matter of, like, five months, it just grew to an actual campaign and did everything that we were supposed to do. I handed in all the paperwork, and the idea was that he could be sort of this surreal person, but in the background, everything was very professional. But it was a very dark time in the sense that, you know, everything was just falling apart, and it was um, a very important step in sort of breaking up the the way the political system had always been to sort of disrupt that structure. People were very much looking for different approaches. At the end of the day, there's not a lot of innovation in politics. Uh, We finished the whole thing, and there was a huge push for him to continue, but that was also part of what we thought was very important, was to like come in, like infiltrate the system, and then leave. Because the one thing that I, I find fault with, like some of the ministers, never worked anywhere. If you've never like tried and failed and, and tried to like, you know, have enough money in your business to pay people, then, you know, you haven't lived. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> what got you into the fishing industry? I was just fascinated by this whole industry. We rely on fishing, aluminum, and very recently the travel industry. And then we have land-based farming in the south part of the country, and that's a growing industry. But we're a wealthy nation because of uh, the seafood industry and how we've gone about managing our resource uh, sustainably. And we are the only seafood industry in the world that's not subsidized by the government. Uh, These are all companies that are run for profit, and that's a very highly political <laughs> uh, dispute here. But, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we've 
made so many advanced as a nation through utilizing this resource and utilizing it very sophisticatedly and like built on research. There are a lot of companies here that have been groundbreaking and I think that story is even more important as we go on. We've actually done something amazing and we actually have something to share there. It's Saturday the 10th of June 2023 and it's sunny for now. We're making our first stop after driving two hours north of Reykjavik. Looking at a salmon river called Grimsá, beautiful row of waterfalls and rapids and in the distance we are looking at a little bit over 1,000 meter high mountains. Quite magnificent scenario that we are seeing in front of us. This accommodation called Rock and Troll Cafe is a very interesting place besides the natural beauty. It's run by a guy called Steinar Berg, leading uh, record producer from the mid-70s until the 90s. He released my childhood soundtrack. It's the music my parents listened to on a daily basis and when they were getting ready for a night out. There is nothing more relaxing than the sound of a flowing river. This idyllic place with a hotel and camping pods really feel like the perfect countryside stay. And as we walk around, I'm noticing trolls everywhere, from sculptures to paintings. And I'm told this is because Steiner started writing troll stories around the time he set up Rock and Troll. Now the name makes sense. We're heading into the hotel restaurant to meet him. The gold discs and the awards on the wall are from my company, Steiner HF which was the leading record company in Iceland. I have released hundreds of Icelandic artists and also represented like the majors in the world. CPS that became Sony and Warner Brothers. There's a little bit of REM there, which is a thank you for job well done, they thought, and then Icelandic gold or platinum awards for some of the artists that uh, were successful through the decades I was running my record company. To get a platinum record in Iceland, how many records do you need to sell? The main rule has most of the time been 5,000 for gold and 10,000 for platinum. In Iceland at the time, the 70s, 80s, with like 280,000 or 240,000 people lived, equivalent to America in millions. 100 times more sales to get gold in America. 5,000 is 5 million. What's this thing over there? Is it an old jukebox? This is a jukebox, yes. 71. In town Akranes, there's a candy store, and kids used to go there, buy candy, and listen to the latest records. Because the radio didn't play pop music. No beer and no pop music. Just imagine. At that time in Iceland, (laughs) beer was banned. One radio station, and it has a a high cultural purpose, and... uh, Rock music was not one of those. There were lots of bands, activity, there were jukeboxes, and there was the American bass station. They would play American radio. It could be heard well in the Keflavik area, and if you had a good radio, you could get it in Reykjavik. And everybody tried to get that, and then you could hear American radio all day long. My record collection of 3,000 approximately vinyls and 5,000 CDs is here 
on display and people who have dinner here, they cannot put the record on the record player, but they can go through the collection and tell us what they want to hear and we play it. They're not allowed to touch the record player? No. (laughs) People don't know what to do. They just take records like this with the fat on their fingers and everything, so no. This is Stuðmenn. Two albums I released, Stuðmenn and Spilverk, same guys. summer of 1975 when this was put out it became the most successful album in the history of Icelandic music the landscape of Icelandic music like back then? It was totally isolated. The record companies here in Iceland did not really exist. I was young and uh, we started like an import shop, so I got to know everybody and then I decided to form my own record company. One thing led to another. Uh, International labels came. I was then in communication with the actual A&R and marketing people in England and even in America. And I imagine that would have kind of been the first time for those other territories to kind of be exposed to Icelandic music. Most people didn't even know anything about Iceland. But I think I broke ice and ground, if you like. I was at the CPS convention in 1979 in Grosvenor House in London. Everybody was there and we had caught the eye of uh, CPS you know, because we had sold uh, 15,000 meatloaf packed out of hell. You know, gold record for Iceland was like in America, 15 million copies. I also used the opportunity to meet with a guy, A&R guy in London, and took some music to him. And then in the late afternoon, I'm there, it's a huge toilet, everybody's peeing as a row of people, and then somebody says, hi Colin, how are you doing? And he's talking to the... A&R guy, UK, I met. And Colin said, fine, anything happening? And then he said, well, yes, I got a bunch of Icelandic cassettes. And everybody left. They left. And I was there. <laughs> that was, you know, difficult sometimes. <laughs> it was a little bit of a joke. You know, somebody coming with cassettes from Iceland to CPS to say, would you consider releasing this worldwide? <laughs> This is Beto Forte. Yeah. 
very young guys, 18 at the time, 1978, playing what was then a wave of music style becoming very popular, like jazz rock, jazz fusion music. And they were so good. I mean, they're just as good as anybody doing this kind of music. We could not have the support. We decided to release it myself in the UK. Just packed our things and moved over and worked out of England for 18 months. 40 years ago, Garden Party got to number 17 in the English singles charts and it became a hit all over Europe. When you look back at like your career, are there any moments that stand out? Stuthman album and the Metaforte. But then we were also involved in other things with uh, international labels. And I was asked by Reykjavik Arts Festival in 1986 if I could arrange to do a really good pop rock kind of a concert. International British bands, groundbreaking concert for Iceland. Simply Red, uh, Madness, who did their last concert before they broke up here in Reykjavik, Iceland, Fine Young Cannibals and Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. A moment a lot of people remember because it was totally packed and it started off openings for artists to come to Iceland. What a place. Absolutely love the music. And I had no idea how much exposure to pop culture in the 60s in the west of Iceland was influenced by the American NATO base in Keflavik, which is where the airport is currently, which is about an hour's drive from Reykjavik. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. People in Reykjavik, like Steiner said, were able to get the radio from the base every now and then. But in Keflavik, that's where people got it 24-7, and they heard the newest stuff coming out of America, like Chuck Berry and Elvis and everything that was new and fresh. All of the biggest 60s rock bands in Iceland, they come from the West Coast and from Keflavik, like a town of 5,000 people. It's called the Rock City because they heard the American rock music. But on the East Coast of Iceland, people there were able to pick up BBC World Service. So they heard the Shadows and Humperdinck and stuff like that, you know. You can hear a notable difference in the bands coming from the East Coast and the West Coast in the 60s and 70s, how they have like a different sound. It's basically an English sound and an American sound. Our last musical appointment tomorrow is with someone known as a bit of a legend among Icelandic musicians, recognised for making unique instruments and working with world-famous artists. We're unbelievably fortunate that they've invited us. Trust me when I say very few people have this privilege. Before we get to that, it's hard to ignore the awesome role that nature plays in Iceland. It's made it a very harsh place to live in the past. This country has been historically very isolated, but today 
all eyes are on Iceland, mainly for tourism, but also as an example of resilience in the ongoing energy crisis affecting many countries globally. This is a crucial motivation in our race to transition to green energy. And when it comes to this, Mother Nature is here for Iceland. A big part of the country's energy comes from harnessing the power of volcanoes. Now, I've always been fascinated by this, so we're off to visit the place where the magic happens. It is now raining. It's pouring. And that means? If the weather is shitty, just wait five minutes. Like, literally, it means that. And that's the famous Icelandic saying? Yeah, a bit more used to comfort tourists with the weather here in Iceland when they get here in shitty weather. Because you never know when you get here. Now we are here in June, and it is, what, six and a half degrees on my car? and pouring um, so you never know now we can see the steam rising up coming from the power plant and creating basically power from um, geothermal heat My name is Leve Gumsdottir. We are located in the single largest geothermal power plant in Iceland and the eighth, I think, in the world. We drill into the earth. We go under this mountain. This is an active volcano. We get some hot water and steam and we make electricity and hot water from it. Half of all water in the Reykjavik capital area comes from this power plant. And there's a little bit of a, a vibration in Dorfi. Is that normal? What's that? Yeah, that's uh, just the power of Mother Nature, I would say. <laughs> Are there any dangers? Yes. We have gases, as the smell you smelt here. Yeah, like the, the kind rotten. of sulfury, yeah. rotten egg is, yeah. a, is what people often yeah. refer to. That's H2S. If it gets too much of that gas, it can uh, be dangerous and, and hurtful for your breathing system. And then when it started this power plant, inhabitants in Reykjavik were sensitive for irritation. And that smelled like what came out of the water? Yes. And then they started to see their silver got more black. Drilling two kilometres down, are there any risks associated to the drilling and, and to the maintaining of the tube, if you like? There can be uh, some kind of explosion. That's why it's a restricted area at the back. Even though it looks innocent. It might just explode. Yeah. So we're just on the balcony on the third floor. I can see pipes coming from over the mountain all the way down to where we are now and into six huge metal barrels which are about as long as half a tennis court and maybe 10 metres high and lots of steam. You can see the lines of the mountain at the back. The contrast of the steam and the moss is always so beautiful. Quite a typical landscape you get in this sort of southwestern part of Iceland. Yeah, moss and lava. And how much of Iceland is powered through geothermal energy? 30% of all power in, in Iceland is geothermal, 70% is hydropower. And it's all generated in the country? Yeah. We're in the exhibition space now. This is a temporary pop-up exhibition here about geothermal heat and the culture. I can see loads of uh, images. Greenhouses, hot pools with 
five ladies and, and two men. That's uh, really common for us after work or in the evening to drop to the swimming pool. And if you go into the hot tub, you could have the prime minister or Björk. You just talk to them like you would talk to every other one. Also, we use the geothermal heat in greenhouses, so we grow a lot of vegetables and flowers. Most of the cucumbers that we buy here in Iceland are from Iceland. A uh, lot of tomatoes. So is cucumber the national vegetable? I would say cucumbers and tomatoes. <laughs> Our culture is really connected to the geothermal heat because in 1970 the oil crisis came. The oil was so expensive. We started to use the geothermal heat to heat up our houses. So I'm really curious what Europe will do in the energy crisis. Sometimes you get some innovation. I think that's an opportunity. That was super interesting. I had no idea that the silverware in Reykjavik turned black quicker. Yeah, and not only that, because for us musicians and people who work with analog gear studios and so on, it's a known thing in Reykjavik that equipment damages and, and, and wears faster than in other places because of the emissions coming from this place, you know, with minerals and damaging copper wires and so on, and especially with the analog mixing and synth gear and so on. So it's uh, definitely side effects, so to speak. Farsell Farm. So we're going to meet a young couple, Asta, Icelandic woman, and Philip from Czech Republic, who have just bought this farm here and trying to build a nice little sustainable life for themselves here in this corner. Hi, how are you doing? Hello. Hello. Frank, you alright? Nice to meet you. Hello. It is a very rural area, um, sometimes a very windy area. It has beautiful mountains all around. We can see the ocean and over to Snæfellsjökull Glacier from our window. The land itself is 28 hectares. That's as big as 28 rugby union fields or 70 football pitches. It's basically as far as the eye can see. It is spectacular. The sea, beautiful mountain range close by and another far away in the distance. I can feel the fresh air blowing in my face and it is so peaceful. Until now, we're being hit by torrential rain. We have the tomato plants, salads. We've just entered the geothermal greenhouse. These are the zucchini plants. We're just testing out uh, different ways to do it now. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited to see how it turns out. We just grow what we eat, you know. We're heading indoors now in one of only two buildings in the middle of this massive parcel of land. Yeah, we live in the bar. We're renting this out to tourists so we can buy a tractor. We are farming tourists. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can come in shoes. I can see two surfboards. Are you surfing in Iceland? Yeah. With dry suits? No, wetsuits. What? Five, six, gloves and boots. Hot spring on the beach. <laughs> when you lose control of or feeling of your fingers, you can go and heat them up and get exactly. them back. That's exactly how it works. Yeah, that's how we do it. 
yeah, just uh, growing veggies and uh, finding waves and following dreams to manage a full-on vegetable farm. Is there actually a space in the market here to grow and sell your own, your own vegetables? Now it's starting to go really well, but it's like a slow progress. Like my grandfather, he was the director of the Icelandic Horticultural University. And just listening to him, like saying they were starting to grow cucumbers, but nobody would buy it because if we've never seen a fruit or vegetable before, we might not buy it in the shop. So they would start selling half cucumbers because then people were more likely to try it. <laughs> people just weren't ready for it at the beginning. We are adopting it very slowly. I think there is a really great future uh, possibility for this in Iceland. We're definitely going to try our best to make this work. Alster and Philip loved those guys. Yeah, totally. And it was so interesting for me to hear them talk about how it might be hard to introduce certain veggies and fruit to Iceland. I remember distinctively the first time I had a mango. I was 20 years old. Somehow found in the local store and it was perfectly ripe. And I was just like, what, what magic fruit is this? This is so good, you know. <laughs> what the hell? It's Sunday the 11th of June 2023 and today we have one last musical encounter. Ivar and I have been looking forward to this for a while. I think it's fair to say we're in the middle of nowhere, even in Icelandic terms. Yeah, we probably can't get further inland here in Iceland without having a converted SUV and going up to the highlands. It's as far as it gets from the ocean. I can see the start of a glacier, some beautiful mountains, lots of different colours, shades of yellow, grey, dark red, and lots and lots of vegetation. We're in Húsafell at the bottom of Borgafjörður fjord. And we are at the residency of Pátl á Húsafelli, multidisciplinary artist, musician, composer, who lives here. I've listened to his sounds in all sorts of works since I was a teenager. Sigurós is one of the bands that changed my life. I was 16 years old when they, they came about, and they made a piece with Pátl called Odin's Raven Magic. He's made percussive instruments, and his stone harps play a key role in that piece, and it absolutely blew my mind. Since then, he's been, like, Björk has been here, opera singers, there have been recordings for movies and, and cinema, French composers, Japanese percussive players, Polish percussive players, and that's just the people he says yes to. Most of the people get a no. He speaks very little English, so I'm going to do my best to translate So we're in an old wooden storage house, which is as long as a tennis court. And all along on my right are what Patler calls stone harps. Yes, it's my, my melody. very similar to a xylophone, but instead of the metal, you have different flat 
stones of lots of different shapes and sizes and colors. How do you find the stone? And the stone is here in Husavell. And then you cut the stone? A little bit. At many is nature. You're walking around in Husafell. Yes. You see a stone, you pick it up, you tap it with your knuckles, and then you know if it's going to be the right note you're looking for. And you're like, that's a B. Yes, yes, yes. This is what's described as a sandwich stone, stone that is cut. Lengthwise, yeah. Yeah, length is like two slices of bread. Yes. So you hear the perfect pitch intervals that he's playing Pitcher. for us. So the stones we were looking at are basically the size of my hand. The furthest you go, the bigger the stones are. And then here, Patli has just shown us some stone the size of my forearm. Where does this idea come from, Patli? When did you decide that you were going to make this stone harp? As you said, there's just like tones everywhere in nature. And then he just started collecting it into an instrument. These are dried rhubarb sticks. Resembling a pamphlet. The tune that Pot wrote about Björk. Stone turflute. Stone flute. Made from the same kind of rock as they used to make. Uh, Gravel stones, drill set, and this is magnificent. Oh, the weirdest sound. The first experiment for a stone trumpet. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I really liked it, and when it changed pitch, they were afraid to tone it. They're in a man's Yes, it's very, it's very human coming through a rock. Now to the drums. So it's two huge flat stones, probably the size of my upper body. Carved in the stone, there's two faces. Evelyn Glenny and Katarzyna Miska from Poland. Evelyn Glenny is one of the most notable percussion player of the 20th and 21st century Scottish woman. She's come here to play and record these instruments, and there's a portrait of her on one of these huge stone plates here in front of us. For me to try. It's a dream for me to come and try this. I make a big part of my living playing drums and playing percussive instruments. A band that's called FM Belfast We've done our fair share of touring over the years. Mm -hmm. There's a small stone harp 
drilled to a wall on a frame almost with uh, pictures of fishes cut on each stone. Probably most famous Icelandic lullaby of all time, Sovdunga Ostimin, Sleep My Young Love. I almost cry when I just say the name. It's a very tragic lullaby that all parents sing to their children at some point. The first verse is beautiful. The second two words people never sing because it's about a woman who's about to throw her child into a waterfall because she cannot uh, uh, take care of it and keep it alive in harsh um, 17th century Icelandic reality. So she sings the lullaby and she, and she throws it away. Last dog. <laughs> Icelandic lullabies for you. I feel so privileged to be here. I really do. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you for having us. It's a, it's literally, yeah, it's, it's a dream come true for me. And like, I, these works, like, yeah, changed my life. Ivar here has pulled something out of the bag. We are going inside a volcano. I was going to say an old volcanic crater, but in geology terms, it's brand new. Formed in an eruption 4,500 years ago, but stayed open as a big, huge dome in the earth. And there's an open hole on top of the volcanic cone, and that is simply not supposed to happen. You know, it's like when children draws a volcano, like a very triangle, pyramid-looking cone with an open hole on top of it. That's what we are going to go into. But it's only in cartoons and movies where you have volcanoes like that. They're not supposed to have an open hole on top of them. And it's probably a one of its kind in the world. How do I get into a volcano? We walk over a lava field to the top of it, and then we go on a lift and we descend 120 meters down into the ground, into the big chamber below. The volcano we're walking to erupted 4,500 years ago. At about the same time, thousands of miles away, the pyramids were being built, and 500 years before that, one of the most important monuments in ancient Egypt, the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut, where our previous ecosystem episode is set. It's an adventure rich in history, art and culture which took us off the beaten track in the magnificent city of Luxor. Not an understatement to say it changed my life for many reasons, so if you've not had the chance to check it out, search for Ecosystem Episode 1, Luxor, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to Iceland for now though, we've been walking for 45 minutes and just reached the top of the volcano. Hello. Nice to meet you, Tori. For the sake of, you know... Safety. You're good to go. Travelling down these 120 meters into the volcano. That's higher than the Statue of Liberty, Big Ben or the Taj Mahal, and just about as high as the Great Pyramid of Giza. Very wobbly. Hanging on cables, on a window cleaning lift, 
going down a volcanic chimney in a while we'll transition into the ground and then we'll start traveling further back in time it's like descending into some kind of fantasy world mm -hmm. you know i mean this is as close as you get to like journey to the center of the earth the novel Jules Verne, and that story starts in Snipersjökull Glacier, in Snipersens Peninsula, where they go dive into the earth there, but you can't dive into the earth in Snipersjökull. So maybe it was here? Maybe it was here, exactly. It would be more appropriate, at least. Alright, just watch out a little bit. We're standing at the bottom of the volcanic chamber. The eruptions are a little bit like shaking a champagne bottle and, and popping the cork. It's liquid with pressure trying to get out. Except in champagne bottles, there's not like an opening at the bottom, feeding it with more champagne constantly. Mark Matthews came through and blew up this chamber, filled it up, and it's just constantly trying to escape until eventually the pressure drops slowly and it doesn't have power to blow up into the air anymore. So it fills up this chamber we're standing in. But here that obviously didn't happen because we were standing in a huge empty chamber. So during the eruption here, something happened which made the magma just flush out, drain out really fast. When I have kids here, I tell them that the trolls went to the bathroom and flushed the toilet. And scientists like really debate how or why it happened. It's got to be trolls. Got to be trolls. That's yeah, as likely as anything else. There's kind of a saying in Iceland, everyone is a geologist. Because geology, earthquakes, eruptions, geothermal heat, mudslide, mountains, like this is such a big part of daily life. I had to remove toys from the shelves in my kids' bedroom so it wouldn't fall on their heads when there are earthquakes. It's only a matter of time until one of us either gets a water drop in the eye. Why is there so much water coming down? The water that we see and hear is constantly dripping every day of the year, filtering through all the different lava layers here. The whole ground here in this area of the country is just like a lava layer after a lava layer after a lava layer for thousands of years, which makes the ground here very porous. It keeps on seeping through the ground here, and in about 50 years' time, this water is literally going to be the drinking water for Reykjavik. There's only about like 3 to 5% of the water that comes in there annually used for the entire cold drinking water in Reykjavik. Water is definitely not something that we have to worry about, at least not yet. In this place, it carries sound really well. It has very good acoustics. This might be one of the world's most unusual venues. Open for general tourism in, I think, like 2011, 12. And since then, there's been all sorts of filming, music. We've had concerts, private events, weddings. There is an episode of The Bachelor been shot down here. <laughs> there's not a lot of things that I would do as a job along with my music. This gives me energy. And like getting ideas when you're away from the computer, clearing your mind, time kind of... <laughs> disappears down here and we've spent almost an hour without noticing could probably spend another so much life happens up the surface and you don't notice down here which is also very nice you get to pause life for a little bit
what a way to sign off these amazing few days we've spent together. Thanks as well. True highlight for me, meeting people like you, to go with you there and, and being able to see Iceland through the perspective of someone visiting. That was Ecosystem, episode two. See you next time. Thanks, Frank. And thank you for listening to Ecosystem, episode two. It's a privilege to share these stories with you. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. We'd also love to hear from you. Would you like more? Where should we go next? Email hello at cercle.io, spelled C-E-R-C-L-E. I guarantee you, we read all of them. Next time, we're in Geneva, Switzerland. We are standing on more than 2,000 years of history. Under our feet, there are four more ancient cathedrals. I'm really excited. It's really fun because it's in front of the cathedral. Protestant one now, Calvin will not really be happy. There's an image you associate with Geneva, but actually the real Geneva is very alternative. It's uh, really culture-based. There are more nationalities here than anywhere else in Europe. Everyone is different and it makes you embrace your culture, your religion. I'm really connected to Tunisia. My roots, I try to mix specific type of Afro house with North African melodies and drums. People are really open-minded. They like to party until late. There's a contrast between people and the politics. Geneva was the most squatted city in Europe in the late 80s, early 90s. So that's also where we're from, kind of punk. Our political system is very complicated. We have to vote every month. We have the chance to decide almost everything in Switzerland. Until then, from me, Frank McQueenie, and the whole team here at Cercle, take it easy. Bye. <laughs>